Welcome to Single Malt History with Gareth Russell, pouring out your serving of pure, distilled, intoxicating, and occasionally delicious history. Hello and welcome to another episode of Single Malt History with me, Gareth Russell, and today I am delighted to be joined by Phil Downing for a Single Malt History special as he takes us behind the scenes, into the walls and underneath the floorboards of one of England's most impressive, fascinating, untouched and secretive stately homes, Harvington Hall. Phil, hello and thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me, Gareth. So, Phil, I've been lucky to be shown around Harvington a couple of times by your good self. And to begin with a brief introduction for our listeners, Harvington Hall is a country house situated in the English county of Worcestershire. The house we see today is mostly Elizabethan, although it gets its name from an earlier inhabitant, Adam de Harvington, who served as Lord High Treasurer of Ireland for King Edward II, monarch from 1307 until 1327. And then de Harvington was Chancellor of the Exchequer in England for Edward III, King from 1327 to 1377. Phil, can you tell us a bit about what Harvington Hall is and how it develops into the house we see today? Yeah, of course. So following on from what you've, what you've just said there is that throughout the medieval period, there was a, a medieval hall here on, on the site where the, the current house is. Um, so after uh, Adam de Harvington's time, it then uh, passes into the hands of the Earls of Warwick and it goes right through until 19, uh, sorry, 1529, uh, and where the land was then bought by a, a wealthy um, lawyer named Sir John Packington. And uh, so he he then owned the estate of Harvington, but of course, as they all did, uh, this this guy had thirty uh, estates just in the Midlands alone. So he you know he's a very wealthy man. So it just made up one of his many estates. But it's not until fifteen seventy eight where the, the current hall sort of comes into being, uh, and it was inherited by a man named Humphrey Packington, and he was the great nephew of Sir John who owned it originally. Uh, and Humphrey Packington has developed the hall. Uh, over a, a sort of a few year period. I mean, so he inherits in 1578 and we know it was known in 1595 as his mansion house of Harvington. So we know that the hall is completed by that point. Um, and what you're looking at today is an absolutely stunning uh, red brick Elizabethan house. Uh, it's actually timber framed. It's just inlaid with brick. And from the outside, of course, it looks it looks brick. Um, but, you know, it's obviously things we'll talk about, but the house uh, is so... Uh, rare in the fact that most of the original features still survive from the time Humphrey Packington built the hall. So, uh, you know, a lot of the floorboards are original, but what really stands out for the hall is we have this huge, as you know yourself, you've been here, a huge collection of Elizabethan wall paintings which adorn all the walls. Um, and it really gives you that sense of what an Elizabethan house would have actually looked like. You know, we all got this misconception that the Tudors is this dark oak looking colour when actually all of their houses were highly decorative, uh, decorative lots of colour and uh, which would have been a real feast for the eyes and it is today you can just get glimpses of what it would have looked like back then um, but of course Harvington Hall is famous for having seven remaining priest hides or what people normally call them a priest holes which is more than any other house in England so from the outside what looks like a relatively small country house there's a lot crammed into it 
Um, but the hall that we see today is only half of its original size. So we know from around 1700, um, the family who owned it after the Packington family, uh, they didn't live here and they actually demolished uh, two wings of the hall, which would have been the the posher part of the hall. So the family chambers, the great hall, the long gallery, all of that has gone. But what we are left with is very much the sort of domestic side. We've got the kitchens downstairs, but we have some very nice rooms on the upper floors. We've got the great chamber, which, of course, would have been one of the grandest rooms of, of an Elizabethan house. Uh, the library, we've got a couple of chapels in the house as well. So uh, there's quite a lot going on. Well, central to what makes Harvington so fascinating and still so important historically is its links to Catholicism, what the historian Philip Caraman described as the other face of living under Elizabeth I, Queen from 1558 until her death in 1603. Can you tell us about what was happening to Catholics in England in the later part of Elizabeth's reign and in the reign of her successor, King James I, and how that impacted on life at Harvington Hall? Yeah, of course. So, I mean, yeah, as a touching more on the later uh, sort of part of the Elizabeth's reign, one of the first things Elizabeth did in the early part of her reign was, was banned Catholic mass. Um, so uh, it wasn't illegal to be Catholic, but you but you couldn't hear or say the mass. So it's not till 1585 where uh, it becomes now high treason for a Catholic priest to even be in England. And that's without any signs of any treasonable act. It's just him being here is what would be would deem him as a traitor. So these are young Englishmen who have, have studied the priesthood abroad. They get smuggled back into England and they're, they're, they, were no, they were certainly itinerant in the early days. So they're constantly on the move. Uh, and it was quoted that a priest must be on the move lest he be taken. So they're they're constantly moving around the country, uh, saying the mass for the for the wealthy Catholics, um, and who they're saying the mass for are the recusants. Now, uh, in Latin, that is recusara. Uh, so these are the minority of Catholics who are paying fines for not going to the Church of England service on a Sunday, which they would be required to do. So it gets very difficult for Catholics because. You kind of, you know, they they want to be going to church. Some of them want to be going to church so they're keeping the the, the you know the queen happy and the government happy, but at the same time, uh, you know, want to still be uh, practicing their own faith. So they'll be doing that at home in secret. But the the Catholic, the sorry, the recusants are the refusers. They're the ones who are point blank refusing to go to that church service. So things become very difficult for them. Um, so once it becomes high treason for a priest to be in England. You don't want a priest captured in your house uh, because that would cause that, you know, you'd be seriously punished yourself for, for that. So in 1586, there was a meeting at a place called Harleyford Grange. Um, now, Harleyford is it was a was a, a, a house where they um, the leading Catholics met. So uh, the Jesuit priest in England at the time, um, William Byrd, the composer, amongst other sort of notable Catholics were were there. And they devised um, a plan of how they're going to smuggle priests back into England, um, uh, uh, set up safe houses where they can be stationed. Uh, and of course, they can be uh, sort of serving the community from those houses. Um, so the execution of Catholic priests actually die off after this period. And it just shows it's because priest holes or priest hides now become into their own where they're keeping the Catholic priests safe. Um, this persecution continues right through into the reign of James I. It's it's a lot worse under Elizabeth. So under Elizabeth, um, 
around 130 Catholic priests were executed and around another 60 or so Catholics were also executed and some of those for housing uh, priests in their home. And then, of course, when James comes to the throne, the Catholics think that things may uh, may ease up a little bit. And of course, that that never happened. Um, and then uh, what the result of that was, was the was the gunpowder plot. Um, but in actual fact, the persecution of Catholics die off quite dies off quite a bit after the gunpowder plot, where you'd think it would be it'd get worse. From sort of 1610 onwards, things did actually calm down a little bit for them. Well, you've been very diplomatic and used both terms, but I know a pet peeve of yours is the term priest hole. So what is its proper name? Well, yes, it is a pet peeve of mine. Priest hole is right. Don't get me wrong. It, it, it's a term that's been used for for, for, for a number of, uh, sort of number of decades. It's been used. The term priest hide has also been used for just as long. Um, there's this big misconception because everyone hears a priest hole. And when we use the term priest hide, I think we've been a bit more uh, PC because, of course, people may hear the term priest hole and, you know, you, you hear a few smirks and, you know, sort of laughs when people mention it. Um, <laughs> but just, just because of the name of it. But, um, but its actual contemporary name is a conveyance. Now, Convey it. The term conveyance, of course, has to do with transportation. It's moving. Um, so I'm guessing this comes from priest moving from one space to another. So if a priest hunter was in the house, they would be looking for conveyances, uh, not a priest hole. If you said priest hole, they would probably guess what you're talking about, but it's not the terminology that they would have used. And if they're coming looking for these conveyances, what would typically happen if the house was searched for hidden illegal priests so what would happen is the first thing that the priest hunters would do is they actually surround the house and we know this because of father john gerard who was a, a jesuit priest in england uh, during this period and he said they'd begin operations on s- s- walking around the house to see where there could be a space where there be a, a maybe a man lay hid or may lie hid so they're looking for spaces from the outside where there might be a room between floors that something doesn't look, or there's a window that shouldn't be there, or there's a window that looks like it's missing, and they start to become quite inquisitive. When they get to the front door, there are a few things that would happen. They either tap very gently and hope that a sleepy servant's just going to open the door to them, or they're just going to be hammering down at the door and start shouting things like, let us in in the name of the Queen. Now, they can only, they can only arrive in, well, they can only come into your house if they have a signed warrant. So... Um, Typically, what would happen is the servant would go to the gate. You don't send the master or the lady of the house because you want to give yourself more time. So you're slowing them down. And particularly, we know there's a house called Ufton Court in Berkshire. And when that was raised in 1599, they took 45 minutes to open the door to the priest hunters. So you slow them down as much as you can. You turn the mattresses in the bed so the cold side faces up and you hide the priest into a priest hide or into a conveyance, and you also remove anything that shows you're Catholic. Now, of course, they know that the families are Catholic because they're recusants, so they're fining them for not going to church. But to be in possession of crucifixes, uh, Latin Bibles, priest vestments, anything like that would uh, would cause uh, cause a problem for the family. What happened at a house not too far from here, a place called Hinlip Hall that was uh, raided four times in total, and the great search of 1606 was two months after the gunpowder plot. 
100 priest hunters turned up and they actually just smashed the door in. They're, they're fed up awaiting at the gate. We know from documentation when they'd be in the house, they they scurry around into smaller numbers and they tip the furniture upside down and start shouting things like, here they are, we found them, we've got them. But of course they haven't. What they're actually trying to do is hope for an involuntary movement from a priest who may be hiding close by in a priest hide. Um, typically you'd find them walking around, kind of knocking on all the wood panelling to see if there's a hollow space uh, behind them, so see if there's a different sound we know on one search they took stonemasons and bricklayers with them so they would be examining all the walls what's been tampered with what's been moved they were known to ring bells uh into spaces put their ears against the walls and see if that sound travels and you know where there may be some hollow spaces um the one that i think was one of the sneakiest ones really is they would all leave the house and, and really let everyone in the house know that they're leaving but one uh one priest hunter will come back in on his own whispering around the house the heretics have gone thanks be to god and what they're hoping is that the priest thinks it's the servant calling them out but we know again from documentation father john gerard when he was hiding at a house called braddock's uh, in essex which is actually somewhere i'm going next week uh, funnily enough um it's a um he only he waited till he heard mrs wiseman's voice who was the lady who owned the house he wouldn't trust anyone else's voice so you know, the priests sort of conned on to what, what the priest hunters were doing. Um, <clears throat> so it's a very, very scary time. That's the sort of thing that would typically happen. And you could be in uh, one of these hiding places for over a week. Uh, the longest time ever recorded is 10 days at Scotney Castle, uh, Father Richard Blount. Um, so it's, uh, it's so you could be in there a long time. And when the priest hunters are there, they will stay in the house. Um, so they sort of camp in the house. They have men stationed on all the lanes just in case anyone tries to escape. They would normally separate the servants as well. So that's an opportunity for them to try and bribe the servants to telling them where the hiding places are. And that is why you never tell a servant where the priest hides are. You don't tell children either because they were known to threaten them with violence. So you keep the numbers to a minimum. Who knows where the hiding places are? Um, and you just got to kind of sit it out and hopefully they're not going to be there for too long. So they could be there for, for hours. So at Badsley Clinton, that was raided in 1591. That was searched for four hours. Uh, uh, and there were only four priest hunters that arrived at that search. Uh, they were fed, they were bribed and they were told to, to be on their way. So um, a scary time, Gareth, I think. <laughs> I certainly wouldn't want yeah. to... Uh, you know, to, to live through that myself. Something I failed to mention as well uh, earlier in one of the other questions, and it sort of just reminded me that I don't think I mentioned how much you'd be fined for not going to church, but the recusancy fines were, were £20 a month. Uh, they were increased, increased from 12 pence because it used to be 12 pence a week, um, but the fines were very rarely collected in the early days. But yeah, it went to £20 a month. So we're talking somewhere in the region of sort of today's sort of Looking at today's money, you're sort of in the region between four and six thousand pounds a month. So you've got to have a lot of money to uh, to be a yeah. recent as well. Yeah, I mean, Definitely. I think it's sort of it does um, that when there's just that's just not sustainable for a, an ordinary family, and I think it it does say, tell you why so many of the Catholic families by the 17th and certainly 18th century are upper class. Uh, it's yeah. you know it, it sort of only survives predominantly in in England amongst the upper classes until the Victorian period. Harvington is, by any standards, astonishingly well-preserved. I mean, off the top of my head, I'm, I'm struggling to think of any 
that is quite like it. And that is something which is still being shaped by Harvington's continued links to Catholicism. They're still working well in the kitchen, for instance, as you've mentioned, these gorgeous uh, Tudor frescoes on the walls. Harvington is today owned by the Archdiocese, headed by His Grace the Archbishop of Birmingham. How did it end up being owned by the Catholic Church in England, and how has that helped preserve it? So after our Packington family, so the, the Packington, Humphrey Packington, who, who built the hall in uh, the late Elizabethan period, his eldest daughter, Mary, uh, was the last gentry, last member of a gentry family to actually live here at Harvington. So she died in 1696. Um, she died at the age of 85 and a half, which is an astonishingly good age. And she was so old that she'd actually outlived everyone apart from her grand, uh, granddaughter. She'd even out, uh, outlived her grandson. So her granddaughter inherited Harvington. Uh, she married a man named Sir, uh, Sir Robert Throckmorton. And I'm sure many people listening would have heard of the Throckmorton family, a very prominent uh, Elizabethan Catholic uh, family, well, throughout the whole of the Tudor period. Um, so the Throckmortons owned Harvington Hall. And because they ha have houses elsewhere, this is kind of a minor gentry house for them. It's probably out, out of date, out of fashion. It's on a moat. It's got old Elizabethan war paintings around it. So they knocked half of the hall down uh, and so the, the really posh bit of the house because, of course, they weren't living here. And they kept the rest of the hall for tenants to work the 6,000 acre estate. They did minor repairs. I think we do the Throckmorton's down bit saying they did nothing with the hall. They did do you know, minor repairs. They kept it going um, right through until 1923. And the, the hall had many different purposes. It was a girls' school at one point. Uh, there were other uh, sort of priests here. Um, it was a, a school again in later, uh, sort of later, sort of late Victorian period. And then it just sort of fell into disrepair. And uh, so, 1923 it was put up for auction by the Throckmorton family, bought for a mere one thousand one hundred pounds. Um, but as I said, the hall was in a real state at that point. But it was bought by a wealthy Catholic named Ellen Ryan Ferris. And she knew the significance of the hall with the priest hides and its Catholic heritage. We also have two saints attributed to Harvington Hall as well. So uh, it, it was very important. And she gifted it. She gave it as a gift to the Archdiocese of Birmingham, of course, who still own the hall today. So they've lovingly restored it for the last hundred years. Um and obviously come at a huge cost. Houses like this don't don't just keep going. Um, so it's been lovingly restored over the over the years. And uh, it's been, uh, you know, been welcoming visitors since the 1930s and it continues to do so. So it's a it's a very special house. It's, it's a very important property that the Archdiocese own. And uh, every year we have an, an annual pilgrimage to uh, commemorate the, the Martyrs of England and Wales as well, which is something we have every September. Yeah, I, I mean, when I saw it for the first time, Harvington, I, I was blown away. I still am when I visit it. And I think the art, I really, I mean, it's just, I, it's difficult to explain if you haven't seen it, just how how close to the original design it is. And I think the Archdiocese has done an absolutely extraordinary job, not just in preserving it, but also in preserving a really important part of the country's history and culture. You mentioned two saints, Harvington ha has a link, to a particularly fascinating Catholic saint, Saint Nicholas Owen, who I think I may be misquoting you here, in which case I apologise. I think you once told me that was the person from history you'd most like to have dinner with. Can you tell us a little bit about Saint uh, Nicholas Owen and his ties to Harvington Hall? 
Yeah, of course. I mean, there's not actually a lot on Nicholas Owen. Um, he was a he was a carpenter and uh, he was a Jesuit lay brother. And he had obviously studied, uh, he'd, he's been an apprentice and used all of these skills uh, for sort of carpentry and joining and that kind of thing and put it to building these priest hides. Um, and we don't know how many priest hides Nicholas Owen built because, of course, there are no blueprints for his hiding places. He certainly didn't etch his name into any of the, I always make the joke that he didn't etch his name into any timber to let us know that they're his hiding places. But we know they're his purely just by how ingenious they are. If it wasn't for the gunpowder plot, it would be very difficult to talk about Nicholas Owen at all. And the reason is uh, the narratives of um, Father John Gerard and Oswald Tesmond on the gunpowder plot. Certainly, uh, Gerard talks about um, talks about Nicholas Owen or Little John was his alias. So Nicholas Owen was said to be quite a short man, um, and uh, unfortunately, he met a grisly end um, in the Tower of London, and he was hiding at Hindley Hall down the road from here in one of his own hiding places in January 1606. And after four days, he uh, he came out of a hiding place. He was hiding with a, another man named Ralph Ashley. And he was taken down to the Tower of London and they put him under torture. And of course, they shouldn't have done because he had a disability. He actually had this hernia and they weren't allowed to be, you know, it was illegal to be torturing him. And his hernia exploded and it killed him. And he died under torture. But the amazing thing is Nicholas Owen didn't say anything under torture. So he saved the lives literally of hundreds of Catholics. You know, we know that priests hid in his hiding places and they came out alive. Um, and we know certainly he could have said all the names of all the families where he went to build hiding places. And he didn't say anything, which I think is an absolutely amazing thing. Um, but uh, the other interesting thing about Nicholas Owen is his all of his hiding places are of a different design. You do not do the same design twice because as soon as you do to build one, uh, like we've got here, we've got the swinging beam hide, which is the famous one. He certainly hasn't done that anywhere else because the priest hunters will be just pushing on all these upright wooden beams to see if it swings open. So uh, absolutely remarkable man. And you're right. Yes, I did. I did say if there's any person I could speak to in history, it'd be Nicholas Owen, because this man would walk into a house and bear in mind, these houses were already built. They weren't being built in the hiding places going at the same time. These are all a later, it's a later addition. So he would walk into a house, he would look at it and think, well, okay, well, if I knock that wall down there, if I lower the floor height here or raise the floor height there, I can create this little three, three foot wide gap and a five foot high space. And it's just, I just, I just don't know how people would have to use technology now, computerized 3D technology to do all of that. But this man was just doing it just purely in his mind i mean it's absolutely brilliant it's it's mind-blowing it really is well is it tr is it true i mean i've heard this theory said that because of how good saint nicholas was at his job that there may still be priest hides that we haven't discovered possibly because who knows i mean i would i would say probably not just purely the fact obviously but, but you know running a house like i do at Harmington, that the the technology nowadays and the scans that you can have it, it, I would I'd be amazed if the space is still unfound. Although I say that there's a there's a house called Maple Durham, um, and Maple Durham found a hiding place in 2003 under a fireplace. So there could well be priest hides still lurking around 
uh, in the country that Nicholas Owen built, and they haven't been found yet. We certainly haven't got any more. We've got a couple of voids in the house where we know there are voids, but they're, they're not hiding places. We know that fact as a fact. So yeah, I would love to think there is. I mean, just imagine still finding a space that's like 440-odd years old. Could you just imagine? It would just be, yeah. Re- regarding priest tides, uh, the fabulous Dr. Tracy Borman recently went more bravely than I. I uh, point blank refused the invitation to get inside one, as you may remember, when she stepped inside one of Harvington Hall's priest tides. But you've done, I would say, this is an understatement, but you've done quite the bit of living history due diligence with the hides, haven't you? What did you do and what was that like? Well, people may call me mad, and I am. <laughs> uh, I, I've slept in two priest hides. It's, we, we believe, strongly believe, that they are St. Nicholas Owen hides, that they are the most ingenious ones in the hall. So six years ago, I spent 24 hours under the stairs, uh, which is a hiding place that's five foot nine in length, five foot wide and six foot high. That was very uncomfortable. I had a, a mannequin of a priest in there with me. Um so that that was creepy, and he he took up most of the room. And thankfully, he didn't say anything to me because that would have yeah. been. Well, after a while, you're lucky he didn't start thinking he was. Yeah, exactly. And then in November 2021, I spent 36 hours in uh, the swinging beam priest hide, um, which is the one that wasn't rediscovered until 1894. And it's it. What was it? <laughs> Firstly, it's they're very dark, and mm-hmm. I mean pitch black we, we all know what it's like when you go to bed at night and you turn the light off give it 30 40 seconds you can see the room you can see the outline of everything in a priest hide you can't see anything it is a wall of darkness the whole time which which would or could send you a bit mad i would have thought uh i could see flashing lights after so many hours of being in there because my eyes were trying to find natural daylight where of course there isn't any um going to the toilets is interesting to say the least uh, you go in a bucket so oh. it's um and again it, it's pretty gruesome but that's the kind of thing they would have done um but one thing that i can tell you and it, it, this is what i love about history is that I, no i don't know what it's like for people to be hunting me down but i can i can go through the emotions kind of but i can certainly know what, you, what it's like to have to be quiet so just any subtle movement is your, and I would say any subtle movement could have been your death sentence because the floorboards creak and I was above a corridor. So any sort of sound above, they would hear it. Um, James, uh, who uh, is our inside joke that we call him the caretaker, as you know. Um, <laughs> but James could hear me breathing through the wall, which I think it, it does sound a bit creepy, but. No, he told me that, Phil. He said he was like, what well, he, he was in the corridor and he said, because I said. Yeah did you know where he was and he said well i did but actually he said if if the hall is empty and you're walking sorry the corridor is empty and you're walking down he was like i could hear him um and he said so i and then i then you sort of think well if you were really diligent an efficient priest hunter you would wait until the middle of night when the rest of the hall is quiet and maybe the priest falls asleep and rolls over and snores or something in his sleep uh yeah yeah, so that i mean i remember when james told me that it did it did the the risks that multiply with the multiple day searches because there's a point at which what if you i mean this sounds like a ridiculous thing but 
you know, I know many, many people will will know what it's like to get foot cramp in bed. And then you, yeah. you like what happens? I mean, you're in it's all very well and good and saying I'll take foot cramp over death. But in the minute of you getting it, you panic. Your body kind of goes into mu- literal muscle memory. So yeah, yeah, I think the the idea of of all the tiny little involuntary bodily signs that could have spelled your death sentence if the if the hunt went yeah. into day two three four five etc that's yeah. when james said that that was what really stuck with me yeah and the, the other thing is as well i mean and and we've got this some document do, uh, documentation is that actually priests would go in in numbers so if there were two priests in the house they're going together and uh, for me i i can see now why from personal experience why well firstly actually if, if you're both together the chances are hopefully they're not going to they're not going to find you because you're in one place as opposed to in two different places if they find one priest in one hide they may keep looking to see if they can find anyone else but the other thing is one they can keep each other sane they can they can have moments of 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 quiet sort of chat maybe between them but also if you're sleeping at night, you'd have someone as I'd call, you know, a night watchman, as it were. So right. one of them, they say, right, you have a little sleep for a few hours. If you make a noise, I can quickly give you an elbow and tell you to be quiet, because of course the, the sound is something that would that would give you away. So, uh, so they certainly went in numbers, and there's multiple multiple um, examples of this. So Father Edmund Campion was captured at a place called Lyford Grange in 1581. There, he was one of three priests hiding in that hiding place. Badsley Clinton, there were seven priests hiding in the same hide. Oh my goodness. It, it is, it's a huge, it's a huge hide. So I mean it could have fit more in there anyway. It's, it's one of the biggest hides. Um and then you've got things like a Hinlip Father um Henry Garnet and uh, Father Edward Oldcorn, just after the gunpowder plot were found hiding together. And again, it's for that I'm guessing for that very reason. So and uh, so you always sort of go in numbers if you can, just because the sound can give it away. And as silly as it sounds, Gareth, and it's something I never even thought about, even going to the toilet, because just having a wee makes a noise. Yeah. So, you know, it's things like that. What what do you do? You know, you, you're sort of dying for the toilet. We know what it's like when you've been holding off too long. You've got to go at some point. So how do you do it? So I wonder is, it yeah, I wonder, is there something that you then... then I said, I'm trying to think, like, of the, I mean, obviously, it's priests, it'll all be men. I'm trying to think, do you... Are you maybe sensible and put sawdust in a can, but then how do you see the can? Like yeah. the sawdust would deaden the noise, but they can't see the can. Yeah, yeah, yeah it is. But, it. Yeah. but again, we, we've got an example at Harmonton here. So the, the hiding place, you remember, above the bread oven, that yes. where, where they've where they've compacted the earth above the oven so it doesn't roast the priest alive. The idea of by having earth there, of course, if you're going to the toilet, it will hopefully drain into that. So it shouldn't be. It ah, shouldn't be out okay. Um, and the the best exactly the first I've ever heard of it or come across it. Uh, there's a place called Townley Hall in Burnley where they have the largest priest hide in, in England. It's it's a huge space, and um, I've been lucky enough in this position here of my job and things to be able to go around to these other houses and into private houses as well, where they've got priest hides where the public aren't normally allowed to go. Um, Townley Hall's priest hide is uh, the, the 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 flooring of it is very thick clay, and as soon as you go in there and you talk, it deadens the sound. It's the soundproofing again. So they obviously were wise to some of these things, and they were trying to soundproof priest hides as well. That is fascinating, Phil. Thank you so much for joining us on Single Malt History. Where can our listeners find you and, and Harvington Hall on social media? 
I always just get, I'm boring to follow, follow, follow Harvington Hall. <laughs> so um, <laughs> if you, you want to follow me, my name's Phil Downing. Um, if you want to follow Harvington, um, we're on everything. We're on Facebook, Harvington Hall, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, uh, threads. I kind of post on threads. I'm trying to get used to that one. Um, so basically, we're, we're, it's a very active uh, social media. I do. I've been doing regular reels of different parts of the hall, try, trying to you know expose the, the best bits. Um, and uh, yeah, we're posting lovely photos. We do lots of lovely events throughout the year. Um, it's just it's one of those places that's been hidden for way too long. And my mission when I became manager, and even before then is by the time I am dead, and I hope I've got another, if I get 60 years, hopefully, uh, everyone's going to know about Harmonton Hall. Harmonton Hall is going to be in everyone's top five. I am determined about that. (laughs) Well, it certainly deserves to be. It is extraordinary. My guest today was Phil Downing, manager of Harmonton Hall. I've been Gareth Russell, and tune in for our next episode. Thank you, and take care. (laughs) 